This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the founder of the XFL, Vince McMahon. This is Aaron Harris, and you are tuning into the Football Odyssey. My guest today is Brett Forrest, author and writer for the Wall Street Journal. Today, Brett joins me to discuss his 2002 book, Long Bomb, how the XFL became TV's biggest fiasco, in which Brett chronicled the lone 2001 season of the catastrophic XFL through the eyes of the Las Vegas Outlaws franchise and documents how the XFL founders Vince McMahon and NBC's Dick Ebersole failed to capitalize on a prime opportunity. Brett's book is currently out of print and can only be purchased via online resale, but as you'll hear, that won't be the case for very much longer. With that said, thank you all for listening, and now I bring you Brett Forrest. All right, Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, of course. Great to uh, talk about this with you. Yeah, man. It's uh, It's been 21 years since you wrote the book and 20 years since it was published. Do you ever flip through the book every now and then? Wow. That is a long time. Thanks for uh, thanks for reminding me. Jeez. Um, you know, I don't – it's funny because I have, I have a, a big bookshelf like a lot of people with a lot of books and – I don't, I don't keep any of my books on there. And, um, so I don't, I don't often lay eyes on the book. Uh, I have a bunch of copies that are in boxes tucked away in some closet. Um, so I don't, I don't see the thing often, but I will tell you that, um, given the fact that the XFL will be revived again for a second time next year, I'm in the midst of, uh, reviving the book itself in, in various forms. So we can get into that as well. Nice. Are you going to like write a forward with it or like for a reissue? Well, yeah, I'm I'm not, uh, not decided on uh, a forward, although that's probably a good idea, but I'm definitely going to uh, issue the book because it never came out in paperback. So I'm going to issue a paperback and, and also, uh, you know, you did mention how old it was. I think that even might've predated uh, (laughs) eBooks funnily enough. So, so we'll do an e ebook version, but uh, but also I've 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 recorded a uh, an audio book version. So we're uh, I'm working with a uh, a very skilled uh, uh, a sound producer, audio producer friend of mine, and we're uh, we're putting that together now. That's nice. Is that your first time recording an audio book? It is. It is. Um, and and we did uh, we did the actual tracks for laying down the the audio uh, itself during the, the heart of the pandemic um, when we all had a little bit more time on our hands and 
And I'll tell you, it was a real challenge. I'd never done anything like that before. I'd, I'd done podcasts and things of that nature, but but reading an entire book out loud, start to finish, I uh, hadn't done that probably since I was a little kid reading uh, you know children's books. Yeah, well, I always think it's cool whenever authors do their own audiobooks because sometimes I think people who recorded that didn't write it, I think it takes a little time to kind of pick up the flow with it. But if you're the one who wrote it, you know, even if it was, you know, some time ago, I think you can still connect with it and kind of put where you were at that point. So it feels like really authentic. That's a really good point. And, um, and I would imagine there's quite a difference between recording an audio book not long after uh, you've written it and recording it, like you said, 20 years after you wrote it, which is what, what I did. Um, and I had not read the book since I had published it. Um, so going back over it, word for word, sentence by sentence, um, it brought me right back into that time when I was doing that reporting and writing and piecing together the, the story. And, um, uh, it gave me a whole new sense of the project. Yeah. And for, like I mentioned, whenever I had reached out to you, I had never done a deep dive into the XFL. I remember when I was, when I was young, I remember seeing on YouTube, excuse me, the, uh, like the hardest hits, which looking back, weren't that hard, but, uh, and I had seen, I, I had seen some games here and there, like portions of games, but I never sat down to watch the whole thing. I, I still haven't seen the, uh, Charlie Ebersol documentary, but this was a great way to get involved and go back in that period of time. Uh, but before we go into the book, can you sort of explain where you were in your career at that point? And was this a project that you always envisioned as a book when you began it or did it start off as a column or an article and kind of got bigger, bigger and bigger? Right. Well, it's a good question. I myself love, love these types of origin stories. Um, and a lot of people have asked me in the past, like, how the heck did you come to write a book about this? You know, this isn't, uh, on the face of it, something that would, uh, uh, demand, uh, uh, longer telling, especially since the league lasted only one year in its first iteration. But, um, but to your question, I was, uh, a younger guy and I was in New York and I was, um, a, a magazine freelancer. So I was writing for anybody who'd have me and trying to, trying to make a buck and trying to learn and improve and, um, and, uh, you know, see if I could make this pro writing thing, uh, give it a go. So, um, I had had some successes early on, uh, writing for, as I, as I mentioned, just a, a, a whole, uh, a wide scope of, uh, outlets. And I had it in my mind that I wanted to write a book because I, and I wanted to eventually make that transition from magazine writing to book writing and beyond. Um, and I was, uh, antsy to do so. Um, and I was looking for an idea. So, uh, cause I had started out as a fact checker at a magazine right out of college. And that gave me access to some very talented reporters and writers, uh, older people who had been at the uh, craft for a while. And one of the guys that I was fact checking way back then was a guy named Sebastian Younger, who went on to write The Perfect Storm and become a huge star in, in, the, in our world. Um, and I, I saw what that book did for his career and how it helped him improve his reporting and storytelling skills. And I mean, boy, for a young guy, that was quite an example and an inspiration. So I was looking for something and, um, a magazine that I worked for, uh, on and off, uh, which no longer exists. It was called gear magazine. It was founded by a guy named Bob Guccione Jr. You might recognize that last name because his father was the, uh, the founder of uh, Penthouse Magazine. Mm, yep. And uh, the son, Jr., went on to found Spin Magazine, which was a, a real popular uh, music magazine. Um, after Spin, he started this magazine, Gear. Um, now, Gear was uh, was a, a men's magazine. In those days, really referred to as a lad magazine, kind of on a on the model of uh, these uh, reverent uh, British magazines that, that were mainly, uh, mainly had a male audience. So gear was started by Bob Guccione Jr. I started writing for them off and on. And um, 
and one of my editors there, we started talking about this new thing called the XFL, which was just being discussed. Vince McMahon, who was the head of the World Wrestling Federation, as it was called at the time, um, had made a splashy press conference announcing that uh, that he and NBC had partnered and they were going to challenge uh, the NFL's uh, stranglehold on the sport professionally. So that's how it started, as a magazine article, uh, as a discussion about a magazine article. And then uh, the project went on from there. Now, in the in the book, you mentioned that in the year 2000, that <clears throat> ratings for all major sports had kind of taken a little bit of a dip. I mean, the Super Bowl had, I think, its lowest ratings in 30-some-odd years. The World Series was down. Monday Night Football was suffering, too. And I imagine uh, the Bush-Gore election probably had a lot to do with it. But was there any other larger trend that kind of made sports fans, I guess, less interested that specific year by the time the XFL had come out and announced its uh, its venture? You know, I think uh, I think what you were seeing at the time was just it was just part of an overall trend that continues even to this day, which is just and, and I think you got to go back early on, not not to be too long-winded here, but if you look back to the era when there were only, let's say, three television networks, um, you had a captive audience. Um, and and then over time, as we've seen, the, the options for uh, entertainment have, have become diffuse, right? So I think what you were seeing then was just... Um, uh, more and more options uh, for eyeballs, uh, the uh, growing popularity of the Internet. I mean, think about it. Er, Mid-90s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, most people were not online. Um, by the time the XFL came around in 2001, uh, the, the, the Internet was no longer a novelty. It was, uh, it was something that was demanding more and more of people's time. So that's where you saw... I think in that period, um, you saw not only sports leagues, but but uh, all, all all types of uh, purveyors of entertainment struggling with this new technology, how to harness it, uh, how to make it a, a positive rather than a negative. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really counted how much of an impact the internet had at kind of grabbing people's attention by that point. So what about uh, Vince McMahon, whatever – he announced the XFL. Like, what was kind of his place in entertainment and culture? Because I, I never really have gotten into professional wrestling, but a lot of people, especially I guess in television, would regard him as a TV programming genius. So, like, in what ways mm-hmm. did WWF kind of revolutionize TV and kind of put him on a pedestal, even though not everybody specifically viewed him that way? Yeah, a fascinating story, a business, fascinating business story. Um, yeah, Vince Vince had grown up in professional wrestling. His father was involved in it, so it was in his blood. Um, and um, he, by the 1980s, had taken over and had brought pro wrestling into a new era of um, cultural relevance, maybe you'd say, and also profitability. I mean, in the 80s, um, pro wrestling under under Vince McMahon's guidance really exploded in terms of uh, the ubiquity of its personalities uh, throughout the culture from guys like Hulk Hogan on down. Uh, suddenly pro wrestling, it seemed suddenly at least, they had just widespread recognition and popularity. Um, so, so Vince had those successes in the 80s but in the 90s, he went even further with a new generation of, of um, pro wrestlers. And he branched out into other forms of media. He took advantage of the, uh, the boom of the Internet. He got into he, he opened uh, um, a uh, WWF themed restaurant in Times Square, which is actually where he had the uh, held the announcement for the XFL's creation. Um, and he took the WWF public, and that made him, on paper at least, a billionaire. Pretty astounding uh, for a guy who was was born into um, a quote-unquote sport and entertainment industry that was 
kind of uh, existing in the back room, in the shadows. You know, he brought it out in front, made it a a prime time attraction uh, that became incredibly popular. So that that story and that timing uh, in the late '90s with the what what became later a bubble on Wall Street, an internet uh, bubble. Um, but at the time, that that bubble is what made been so wealthy and so influential that story provides the foundation for the creation of the xfl because vince having had this astounding success with the wwf um he was uh confident and he wanted more so he wanted to get into football that that is where the xfl dream if you will began it began with vince mcmahon and his desire to branch out from staged sports pro wrestling to real sports pro football and, and he had tried to get into the nfl and to even buy the cfl correct yeah that's right he he had he wanted to buy an nfl team uh but that's not so easy of course not only is it expensive but he you know he he was in a position to afford it at the time, uh, or at least uh, partially afford it. I'm sure he could get financing for the remainder, or as often happens, you know, people develop ownership groups. Um, so he, 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 could have, he could have covered that side of it. The more difficult side for him, the bigger challenge, was, um, was getting the approval of the NFL's governors, the NFL owners. Uh, this is uh, This group uh, looked down its nose at Vince, um, and I mean, on top of it, the availability of teams is, is always very limited. So he, he found frustrations and limitations there. Uh, so he looked, um, north of the border to the CFL, Canadian Football League. And, um, I believe at the time the Toronto Argonauts were possibly available. Uh, Vince started speaking with the CFL and he actually came at them with a much bigger idea. He wanted to buy the entire league, um, which was uh, evidence of this confidence that he had, having become a billionaire, having developed the World Wrestling Federation into this cultural entertainment behemoth. Um, he wanted to buy the entire CFL. It didn't work out, and he was left wondering what to do next. He still had this great ambition for pro football. And he wanted to essentially rewrite a lot of the rules for uh, the CFL, right? Well, I, I, I'm not sure how developed his thinking was on that yet. Um, I know that uh, ultimately that's, that was his approach with the XFL. Uh, I think it was – I think what happened with Vincent Mann is that he – yeah, he was – this guy was an innovator. and. Let, let's call it what it is. I mean, he he didn't do things by the book necessarily. So he, he let, let's say let's put it this way: a lot of people have wanted over the years and the decades to get a piece of what the NFL has. Now, that that business success, that cultural popularity, that importance that um, that the NFL has. A lot of people have made challenges to the NFL. Uh, Vince's challenge, I think, was fundamentally based on a belief that the only way to succeed was to do it differently, uh, to change the rules, to um, take advantage of, of portions of the way that the NFL presented its game, staged and presented them, that maybe frustrated fans. Maybe there were parts of the game that the fans wanted more of. Um, and I think that, that that underpinned Vince McMahon's belief that there was an opportunity to be had. If, if some rules were changed, if the game could be amped up, if it could be more, more entertaining, more of a show than what the NFL put on, uh, that's where he started. And I think, I think that's, that belief then began to, to take shape. 
Well, that, that's something I was wondering when I was reading the book was, was he putting in all these rule changes or, you know, sexing up the game, so to speak, because he thought that's what the audience really wanted, or he was just trying to be con- like uh, contrary to the NFL, so to speak. Well, it's a good question because boy, if anybody, anyone who's, who's observed Vince McMahon over the decades knows that, he likes to stir, stir things up. Right. Uh, he, he, he likes to be contrary. Um, and you know, more power to him because it's worked very well for him. That attitude. It's uh, a lot of people like that. Um, but I also think that, like I said, fundamentally, I think, I think he found, uh, he thought that there was an opportunity there to, to do things differently. And also really important to keep in mind is the fact that, World Wrestling Federation at the time was as popular as it had ever been. And what we're talking about is a staged pseudo athletic performance. So Vince McMahon believed that he could, he could take, he could sort of wed these two things, real sports like pro football, real sports where the outcome is not known beforehand, where you have athletes, playing hard against each other, uh, trying to win, uh, marry that with the super successful staged managed uh, approach to pro wrestling. He wanted to put these two things together and make this, make this baby that would uh, revolutionize the way that sports was televised in America. Now, what about uh, NBC's role in this? Because like you pointed out in the book, really the only thing they had going for them in prime time was Friends, and that was going to be wrapping up soon. And they didn't really have anything else to kind of substitute with it because they didn't have the NFL and some of their sports they had lost because they were just too expensive. So was -hmm. was this a move kind of driven on NBC's part, this partnership by desperation or not necessarily financial, because obviously they could be well off without it, but from a prestige standpoint, were they trying to strike lightning in a bottle or trap lightning in a bottle? Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you, NBC's role in this is equally fascinating because um, it's, it's actually the XFL makes a fascinating business story, uh, entertainment business story, uh, despite the fact that despite the fact that a lot of that it, it became quite quickly and remains uh, uh, the butt of a, of a joke. Um, it actually made, in my opinion, a lot of sense uh, from a business standpoint, because I'll tell you what, what didn't make any sense anymore was buying the NFL rights or a piece of the NFL rights from the NFL, the television rights. Um, you know, NFL television rights, uh, decades and decades ago, uh, from the earliest days of, of TV were cheap. Uh, and the NFL needed TV. Um, but as the NFL's popularity grew, uh, the, the relationship shifted and it became perverted in a way. Uh, for example, when, when Monday night, when ABC created Monday Night Football, uh, you know, the first time that the NFL was um, was televised on a weekly basis in prime time rather than during the day on Saturdays and Sundays, which was the traditional time period. Uh, that that Monday Night Football was a creation of ABC. The NFL did not create Monday Night Football. Uh, the uh, folks at ABC created it, and they pitched it to the NFL. Well, what happened was that Monday Night Football became this cultural phenomenon, and it made the NFL even more popular and it became this incredibly valuable property that 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 time slot that uh when the um when the deal expired between abc and nfl uh suddenly abc realized that now the nfl was going to charge them an arm and a leg to continue the relationship so um that is sort of the philosophical um uh, shift that, uh, that the networks had to come to grips with, because by the time uh, that the end of the 90s rolled around, uh, the NFL was charging so much to the networks for the right to broadcast its games that the networks were guaranteed 
to lose money and a lot of it over the course of their agreements with the NFL. So it was a guaranteed loss on the books to take on the NFL television contract. And the reason that, uh, that networks continued to do it is because executives at these networks felt like they just couldn't be without the NFL because the NFL drove so many viewers to the network that it allowed the network for one thing to advertise all of its other programs during the NFL telecasts. So they felt like they, even though they were losing all this money, they still needed to buy it. They still needed to buy the NFL. What NBC said was kind of revolutionary for the day. They had always broadcast the NFL, or at least for decades and decades. But Dick Eversall, who was the head of NBC Sports at the time, said, you know what? We're losing too much money on this. Let's not bid for it anymore. Remember, the NBC, NBC had the Olympics. NBC had always, for a long time at least, been identified with the Olympics. And they felt like, okay, we have the Olympics. That can be our sports linchpin. We're not going to we're not going to sign up to lose all this money on the NFL anymore. There's got to be another way, and that's when Dick Ebersol began to think, what else? What else can we do? How can we fill in that gap that we now have since we don't have the NFL? Now, what happened then was. The fact that, well, it grew out of a relationship between Dick Ebersole and Vince McMahon. The two of them had known each other for decades. Yeah, it seemed it seemed that the idea behind it, to your point, was actually sound because you don't want to break the bank at the cost of, you know, other departments or other programming. But this is also kind of a time before i mean in my lifetime i've seen quite a few leagues start up and fail and this one seemed like you could have a legitimate other option so to speak especially if it was in the spring yeah exactly i mean it it it, it made a lot of sense it it wasn't the the resulting product you know what you would what you, you people turned on tv in 2001 and, and began watching wasn't it, it often didn't appear as though it had been thought through enough, um, and therefore it failed miserably. But but it made a lot of business sense to try something new, to try something different, rather than uh, just sign up to lose bundles and bundles of money to the NFL during uh, during the life of a contract with the NFL. So it it it, it made a lot of interesting sense to me at least, as I began to dig into it and understand the reasoning behind it. But looking back, who do you think they were really trying to target? Do you think it was the passionate football fan, or do you think it was more so the WWF crowd? That's a good question. I'm not sure they ever really do. (laughs) Honestly, I think it it was based on a general belief that you had two massive audiences. You had the pro wrestling audience, which, as we mentioned, was was larger than it had ever been and had made Vince McMahon into a billionaire. Uh, And then you had the pro football audience, which was, by that point, um, that audience had made pro football, the NFL, uh, into the national sport of the U.S., of course, we baseball is always uh, uh, mentioned in that regard, but I think it's clear to anybody uh, who observes sports today in this country that football is really the driver. The NFL is really the driver. So you had these two massive audiences, pro football, people who love pro football, people who love pro wrestling. Of course, there was a, a, there's already an or- organic overlap between those two groups anyway. Uh, and I think Dick Ebersol and Vince McMahon had this, had this belief, whether it was founded on anything uh, solid, that um, that if they if they put together a product that 
had a little bit of pro wrestling and a little bit of pro football that naturally these two massive audiences, or at least a large portion of each of them, would be drawn to the product. Yeah, and it seemed that first week they were onto something because the ratings were astronomical. And after the first week, when people saw what it was about, I mean, they still had respectable ratings, but it was still a, a sizable drop that they said that they foresaw. But as the season went along, as you write about, people didn't want <clears throat> the spectacle. They wanted just football but it seemed they did the opposite of what the focus groups and the audience wanted. They just doubled down on the entertainment, which really came to a boiling point. It seemed when Jesse Ventura was on the, the field with uh, Russie Tillman, the New York, New Jersey mm-hmm. head coach. said you were gutless going for that field goal, not trying to push it in. Good for Jesse. He wouldn't know if a football was pumped or stuffed. How do you like that? I'm getting under his skin, JR. I don't think he's a very good football announcer. What's he, listening to my broadcast instead of coaching? I'll tell you this, JR, if there's anyone capable of blowing a 10-point lead, it's Rusty Tillman. Now, Jesse, frankly, I don't give a damn. Jesse is leaving us. This ought to be good. Hostile territory here. He's got a beeline on uh, Rusty Tillman. My favorite coach. How you feeling after the win? I feel fine. Ain't you gonna talk to me? No, I don't want to talk to you. You want? Sure did. For what? What do you want to talk about? I want to congratulate you. First win, you're back in the race. Your team gets the bonus. I got nothing to say. He's afraid of me. So, like, who's like, what was the logic behind trying to double down on this when clearly the audience wanted something else? I mean, was this? something that Vince and Dick really believed in from a, you know, a business standpoint, or was there kind of like a conflict going on inside NBC about what to do with the product? Mm-hmm. Well, look at, at that point, they're, they're on a runaway train yeah. and they're just, they don't know how to control it because as you mentioned it, the, the, uh, the first game drew huge ratings, at least at the start of the game, because, um, the, the sport was on NBC. I mean, it was on a, a major network. Uh, it wasn't on, uh, let's say, USA or, or some some uh, maybe second or third level uh, cable network. This was on NBC. It was on prime time. It had Vince McMahon behind it, who was um, a hugely popular or at least well-known figure. Uh, and they, WWF and NBC had spent months promoting it. So it had huge uh, visibility. Uh, a lot of people knew about the league. And it was um, coming on at a time when there was no NFL on TV. So, uh, but I, but what happened was um, people tuned in and they saw two things that turned them off. One was kind of slapdash. Uh, vaudevillian attempts at, at humor and entertainment. Uh, and they also saw what the product was fundamentally on the field, and that was minor league football. Um, and when viewers left in droves uh, from the from the telecast in the coming weeks, you know, get, the people at NBC and the people at the World Wrestling Federation, they, they didn't know what to do. And they still had to put on games every week. So they suddenly had felt like they had very little control. Uh, they didn't know how to get viewers back. Um, and they, they were grasping for straws. And ultimately, Vince McMahon was the one who dictated uh, how the games would go, how the telecasts would go. And that's why you saw more of this sort of... Uh, attempts at cheap humor, vaudevillian approaches that um, that ultimately just didn't take with the audience. Yeah, I like that, uh, the halftime going into the cheerleaders locker room at halftime. Yeah, that was something that they had they had played up in the in the week before that game on TV and advertising. Uh, that there would be this halftime look into the cheerleaders locker room and uh yeah, it was all very cheaply done and uh, <laughs> cheaply framed, and and then 
when, when you got there uh, the halftime of that game, it, it was it was sort of a, a B level production that had been um, previously recorded. Of course, there was no nudity. I mean, this is on NBC after all, and it was it was just real low rent stuff uh, in the end. And it just didn't, like I said, just didn't take with viewers. Yeah, sometimes I kind of wondered if this was on HBO. Let's say would it have had more success? But being HBO, on NBA, well, like something that didn't have you know sensors or standards and practices to really go the full mile, I guess, of what they were trying to do or envision in their head. Right, right. Well, that's an interesting thought, but I'll 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 tell you what I I think that it would have succeeded or it would have had a, a much better chance uh, to succeed if it was on uh, a different network, uh, not a different network, but a cable network. Like Spike and TV or something? Been, yeah, and if it had not been in prime time. Because by putting the XFL on NBC in prime time, suddenly um, Vince McMahon and Dick Ebersole defined uh, a what success for the league would mean. Uh, because when you put a program in that slot on that network, it must earn a certain number for advertisers and executives to uh, to consider it a success. And if you had any, if you had uh, a number of viewers that that fell below that that mark, um, then you know you got a lemon on your hands. But if you put the thing, if you put the XFL, which is what they're going to do. Um, in this third iteration of it, and which is what they did in the second one during the pandemic. If you put it on a cable network and you stage the games, not in prime time, but on the weekends in the afternoon, suddenly your terms of success are redefined. Now a success is, is, is um, much fewer viewers. You have to bring much fewer people to the telecast to deem it a success. And then what you need to do with a new league in any sport is you need to, you need to give it a runway of uh, several years to build fan familiarity, to build popularity, to learn how to, how to administer the league. So the XFL, I mean, the people who ran the XFL and the decision makers that gave it very little chance to succeed. Uh, it, it would have had to, been a huge rating success and and continue to be one throughout its entire first season uh, in order to get a second one and beyond. And it just wasn't possible. But do you think if the quality of play had been better, that people would have tolerated the raunchiness and the entertainment aspect of the league? I think that's a fair point. Um, but I don't know if it, if it makes much sense to answer that question because uh, the NFL has all the best players, right? Right. Um, that's not going to change, or at least it's not going to change with the iteration, with the version that the XFL had in 2001. Um, essentially, the XFL was and would always be a minor league of pro football. So I don't think that that's something that is ever going to draw large viewership certainly in the numbers that would uh, that NBC in prime time would require. So it was just never going to have a higher level of performance. Yeah. And <clears throat> admittedly, all the games I watched or most of them involved the LA extreme, which were the best team in that league. So maybe whenever, because to me, it seemed like as the league progressed that the quality did get a little better, but then again, I was watching the best team. So maybe that's not fair for me to say. Yeah, but the quality would always improve. I mean, I, as I mentioned, this is this was uh, year one of a new league, so it was also it was year one for the for the folks who were uh, administering the, the telecast. But it was also year year one for all the players and all the coaches. And we know how difficult it is to uh, to build chemistry uh, on on a sports team. I mean, it takes time. Um, so we did see. Teams like the LA Extreme and others uh, improve as the games went along. And if there had been a second, third, fourth season, I think you would have seen that throughout the league. Now, as far as the uh, Las Vegas Outlaws, I mean, this seems like the perfect place 
to tell a story like this. Um, when you got there, I mean, were, were the players and the coaches receptive to you when you arrived? Yeah, well, actually, let, let's go back to the uh, origin of this whole project, uh, the Gear Magazine article. I had gone to Las Vegas before the season had begun, uh, and I did some reporting there with the players and coaches and ran into Dick Butkus, who was a uh, part of the league's front office, and and got a sense for what this whole thing was going to be. And they were receptive. Uh, of course, at the beginning, and before the season began and in the first weeks, there was, as we mentioned, a lot of attention on this league. There were a lot of people who were curious in the media, uh, in the in the press, as to yeah, what this thing was going to look like, if it had any legs. Uh, would Vince McMahon, um, uh, you know, how... How badly would he trample on the sort of uh, pro football traditions? Um, there was a lot of publicity, so there were a lot, there were a lot of reporters sniffing around. But I'll tell you, once uh, the viewers started to the viewership started to fade, there weren't a lot of people covering this stuff. So uh, I found at practice and at games and elsewhere, I, I moved out to Vegas to cover the team. Uh, I found that uh, that I was really one of the only guys who was paying attention to them. Yeah, that's interesting. They uh, were they receptive, I guess, to the gimmicks and the showman part of the of the league as well. Yeah, you know, that didn't touch most of the players, to be honest. Um, you know, the football teams are comprised of a lot of guys, and uh, the uh, the hijinks and the theatrical productions that uh, that the WWF people inspired uh, really touched only a few of the players and most of the guys just kind of went along with it they they were there not not for that aspect they were there to showcase their talents to get a chance uh, in the NFL that's what those guys were there for a lot of those guys had been in the NFL had played in the NFL had been cut or had been injured and were trying to put some tape together uh, for scouts and coaches to get back into the league. Um, other guys had had um, good college careers, but hadn't been drafted, hadn't stuck with an NFL team. Uh, and, and all these guys came together to be serious about football and to win and to show that they, um, that they had skill and, and, uh, and, and, you know, should get another shot at, in the NFL. So they weren't really focused on all the, the, pro wrestling type of um, televised theatrics that went along with it. Cause that wasn't a pass for them to anything sustainable. Did you uh, get a sense of any players who felt that even if they couldn't get back in the NFL, that they had faith that the XFL was here to stay? Sure. There were a lot of guys, I think who were realistic about their NFL chance chances. I mean, even though they, they all wanted to get there or get back there. I think guys realized too, some of them that it's, it, it was a long shot. And a lot of these guys, to be honest, they, they just like playing football. They'd been doing it for a long time. They didn't want to stop playing football. And this was an opportunity for them to continue to get paid for it. Not paid all that well, but they could get paid for it. They were in the league in its first year. Uh, they hoped that it would continue. And they wanted to see where it would lead. Yeah, well, going into the the book, I knew that Rod Smart was going to be a topic of conversation or a topic in the book. You know, he hate me. Right. But as you were writing more about Ryan Clement, I feel like he kind of personified what a lot of people go through in uh, these kind of minor league circuits where you have a guy who in college, it didn't go as he had planned. Obviously, you mentioned that, you know, being the quarterback at the University of Miami, they had a suspension for, you know, years for activities that were done years before he got there, but he had to suffer the consequences and nothing really panned out his way in the pros. So here he was trying to showcase his talents one more time, or at least get a new start in a new league. Yeah. Ryan was a really good guy. And, um, uh, I, I was grateful to him that he opened up to me and, and, uh, allowed me to spend all that time with him. He was, uh, at least for a portion of the season, the starting quarterback for the outlaws in the XFL in Las Vegas. But, but you're right. He had, he had kind of a, I won't say tragic story, but a sad story from college because as 
if you recall, um, boy, in the 80s, uh, the Miami Hurricanes were a, a college football phenomenon. I mean, they, they won national championships. They sort of, the program kind of came out of nowhere in the late 70s uh, by taking a lot of uh, local kids around Miami and uh, who otherwise weren't really getting opportunities uh, with teams and collected them all uh, locally in Coral Gables. And they, the, the, the program took off. And uh, Ryan Clement was a big high school player, quarterback, All-American, and he um, he was recruited to come play in Miami. And when he showed up on campus, he believed that he was going to just get into that uh, slipstream of success that the Hurricanes had, had had. But like you said, they, um, they had been uh, penalized by the NCAA. So by the time he saw the field there, uh, the, the team had fewer scholarships, uh, fewer uh, top high school recruits were going there. And suddenly Ryan Clement, this um, high school uh, quarterback star, was under center for the Miami Hurricanes, and the team wasn't very good. And um, and he his play was spotty. He didn't have the support that he uh, had expected uh, when he enrolled there. And years went by in college, and he just, it didn't come together for him and uh it was um, a tough pill to swallow and by the time he got out of college um he there was no interest from the nfl in him and um he kind of sunk into a bit of a depression and then the xfl came along and for him it was um a way to uh awaken reawaken the dream of, of pro football of making the nfl and like a lot of guys, he saw it as a way to sort of try out for the NFL. And it, and look, this thing's going to be on NBC. Every a lot of people are going to watch it. It is pro football, and here's another chance for me. Yeah, and I think to, <clears throat> towards the end of the book, whenever you were talking about after the last game of the season being at his house or his apartment, when he was talking about a, a game in college, where and he had some friends from Denver, I think that were there. I mean, it just kind of like highlights the struggle that it can be to have to look back and think what could have been. Yeah. I, I felt bad for Ryan. Like I said, I, I liked him. I thought he was a good guy. And, uh, um, I, I didn't blame him for, for being hung up on, uh, games from the past, uh, playing quarterback for the Miami hurricanes must've been thrilling. Um, and he was in some games that did go well for him and did go well for the team. And he did perform well. And, um, you know, I never played big time college football. I don't know what that's like, but it, it, it must leave quite an impression. Um, and, you know, on one hand, I understood why he would often go back to those years in our conversations. And on the other hand, I, I wanted to see him move on and I wanted to see him succeed in life in a different way. Yeah, sure. Now for the, uh, to sort of get to the, uh, last parts of the interview here. Um, sure. Did, did, you, did you kind of see Vince McMahon's interview with Bob Costas as sort of like the beginning of the end for the XFL in some regards and how he just seemed to be unhinged throughout? Hmm. Yeah, that interview is fun. It's a fun <laughs> one to watch. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, it starts, uh, it starts off good. kind of good, but then it descends pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, um, it's typical Vince McMahon. He uh, he has a persona, um, and his persona is a tough guy. Um, that's the that's the role that he played in the ring for, in WWF. Uh, this uh, this tough guy, the boss, uh, who was going to intimidate uh, less powerful people, smaller people. He often in the ring got his comeuppance, but um, but that's one of the interesting things about Vince is that he would play that role in real life situations. Uh, he played that role when he uh, gave the press conference to announce the XFL. I mean, he was up there behind the podium announcing this quite ambitious and expensive. Uh, new business that he was partnering with NBC on. I mean, they were 50-50 partners. And he is up there playing the role that he played in the WWF ring. 
And he did the same way in the Bob Costas interview. I mean, look, at that point, I think anyone connected with the project who was being honest with himself or herself realized that this wasn't going well. It wasn't going according to plan, and it was actually becoming a bit of a joke, the league, that is. So by the time he sat down with Bob Costas for the interview, um, I think Vince kind of had very little to lose. Um, and Bob Costas had had a lot to ridicule, uh, or at least criticize. And that's not something that sits well with Vince McMahon. He doesn't. His entire professional life has been full of ridicule because he's always stood on. Uh, he's never been uh, part of sort of uh, old money in crowd, if you will. And that's we can go back to his failure to buy an NFL team. I mean, he's never really been um, part of the approved crowd. So. Um, and that's also, I think, what's made him so popular among a large portion of the population. I mean, a lot of people identify with that. Um, so I don't know if that interview was the beginning or the end of the XFL. To be honest, I think the XFL had um, spelled its own doom even before it began for the reasons we've already discussed. I mean, it it set the, the bar for success way too high uh, without realizing, I think, that uh, essentially what, what you had here was uh, minor league football. Well, and plus, too, no matter how well the ratings did in the first couple of weeks, it seems like they never got the support of the writers because they just looked at it as like what you and Bob said, low rent entertainment. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the writers, reporters uh, and major media outlets never really liked Vince and uh, and he never cultivated uh, great relationships with them. I mean, it was a hate, hate relationship. So. Uh, they were a lot of the writers, a lot of uh, reporters were eager to uh, criticize the XFL and um, and Vince gave them plenty of reason to do so. I mean, what what when we get back to this idea of minor league football, take a look at a couple of other examples. For one, you can look at the USFL, uh, which was you know, a league in the 80s, a pro football league that played in the spring and um, had a lot of success. And was around for several years and had good TV viewership, good attendance. Um, and another example um, is the World Hockey Association, which was a league in the 70s, which also did moderately well and survived for about, I think, seven years. The reason I mentioned these two leagues is because each of these leagues poached players from the established leagues. So the USFL signs players from the NFL, but more importantly, the USFL signed major college stars as they came out of college. Um, uh, players who went on to to have uh, Hall of Fame careers in the NFL after the USFL folded. Uh, the same for the WHA. World Hockey Association signed uh, Bobby Hull from the Blackhawks, uh, one of the luminaries in, in, in pro hockey. Um, so that's something that enabled those leagues to have initial success and ultimate longevity, both leagues folded, of course, but, um, but you can also look at the WHA as a, as a success story because four of its teams, uh, were taken into the NHL in 1979 when the league folded. So anyway, I mentioned these two leagues because yes, those leagues, the level of play was lesser than the established leagues, but but the difference wasn't as great than the difference between the NFL and the XFL. The XFL didn't sign any big college stars. The NFL, XFL didn't poach any existing NFL players. The XFL was simply comprised of guys who couldn't make the NFL. And I just don't think that that kind of league uh, is ever going to generate the kind of viewership numbers that would need uh, that w- that would constitute success uh, in prime time on network TV. Yeah, I've said this on the show before. I mean, usually during the off season, it's my time to go back and rewatch old football games. You know, stuff from 
70s the 80s the 90s you know it's it's just a chance to kind of revisit a lot of the things that were before my time or some of the games i saw in childhood like to be honest i've seen one game of the new usfl this year and i haven't seen any since it's just a time for me to you know look at a brand of football that came before my time and i've always said you know to me to really watch a new league i need to watch you know a real original league that isn't a carbon copy of the nfl you know, and, and there's some there's some rule changes like, uh, you know, you can go for three points or the kickoff is going to be different. But for me, I, I'd rather see something a little more of a significant difference, per se. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what what kind of significant difference could there be? I mean, it, the, the thing is, uh, when you when you take an established game and you, and you start manipulating uh, the way that it's played, at some point you're going to get to a version that stops resembling the original, right, and becomes something different. Yeah, it may seem so, unorthodox. It may seem unorthodox, but I think you could definitely make a league where maybe instead of seven men on the line of scrimmage, you have five, or maybe you mm-hmm. can change some of the shifting rules like they, you know, had back in the early like, 40s or 50s. You know, j- just some things I think that don't really get taken with enough. That maybe you could still keep the original, like the, the core DNA of the game, but have a really new looking, fresh approach. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, you there's a sport uh, that's very popular in Europe called handball. It's in the Olympics yeah. and uh it's kind of a cross between like soccer, hockey and basketball. Um but it's not any of those. So, I mean, you know, I think you you see you see this across the sports landscape where you have uh, a lot of overlap between between various sports, uh various elements that they have in common. Um you know, how 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 much must you change pro football to make a product that is different enough and interesting enough to draw an audience? I don't know. I mean, I, I, the problem with making a rival league to the NFL now is that the NFL just has primacy. Right. Um, you know, it has it has a, a, an entrenched audience. Um, but it will, I think it will always be tantalizing to ambitious business people to see how much the NFL is worth, how much NFL teams are worth, um, how much advertisers pay to run their, ad- their advertisements on NFL telecast. I mean, it's just ambitious business people. There will always be somebody who will try and figure out how to get a piece of that. Yeah. And, and despite the XFL's failure, both in 2001 and more, uh, 2020 i mean obviously there's you mentioned earlier there's going to be another incarnation of it so like, what would you say is the xfl's lasting impact in you know the football world so to speak yeah i i think its lasting impact is limited uh you do you do see that the nfl and its uh, broadcasters have incorporated some elements of the xfl telecast principally the use of the overhead camera uh, during um, during plays and, and during replays um, that is some that is an innovation that began in the XFL. I don't think most people know that. I'm talking about the the camera that is suspended over the field on on wires um, that gives you the uh, point of view uh, sort of in the in the huddle and and behind uh, behind the quarterback and and the offensive backfield looking downfield. Uh, that is something that was created in the XFL. And actually, strangely enough, it, it was inspired by uh, the Madden video game. Because one of the um, folks who worked on the XFL for NBC had a kid who was playing that all the time at home well, in the period when uh, the XFL was under development. And uh, this guy brought that idea, he proposed that idea to, to the group. And they started messing around with it, and, and they used it um, during telecast. Also, you know, the XFL um, did a lot of interviewing of players and coaches on the field during the game, uh, which was very strange <laughs> at the time. Um, but you see that not only um, in the NFL, you'll see it's pretty limited in the NFL. In the NFL, but you see that much more broadly across all pro sports now. Uh, and thirdly, I would say that um, the XFL innovated in its use of on-field cameras. 
which are ubiquitous now in the NFL. Um, the, the XFL had a guy, they called him the Bubba Cam. And this was a guy who had some padding on and a helmet, and he would run onto the field with a camera, I believe it was a steady cam, uh, between plays. And he would get into the huddle and then run off. Uh, and, and that had never been done before. But, boy, don't we see a lot of that now in the NFL. So that that's probably its lasting uh, impact. And you're trying to, <clears throat> this new project you're doing with the book, you want it out by the time the 2023 XFL launches? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I, I'm doing it more for myself, uh, kind of as a lark. Uh, I, I hope that some people out there would enjoy it. But it, yeah, it does make sense to have it um, have it ready and available by that time, because certainly there will be renewed interest in the league. Uh, I think a lot of people will show up and, try and figure out what this is all about. The, the 2020 version of the league, I don't think is a good study because while uh, it, it, to my mind, it, it was going pretty well, the pandemic hits and, and really destroyed the league. So, so this um, third opportunity with the league, I'm very curious to see how it goes. One, because it has a what I think is a really professional team behind it. The rock, as you may know, is, is uh, a, principal owner or at least part owner and the driving force behind it and recently uh, the league announced that its games would, are going to be broadcast on ESPN and I think we all understand uh, how regular exposure on ESPN can benefit a league or a player or a team I mean, when ESPN signs on to broadcast something they're also signing on to promote it endlessly so um, a lot of people are going to become aware of the XFL, um, and I don't think that the bar for success is going to be terribly high at ESPN. I think that they understand this is uh, this is a minor league. Uh, this is the first year of it, and uh, they I, I can't expect they're going to have great expectations at least at the outset. So I'm really curious to see how it how it performs, and I think that um, you know having Having the book ready in these new formats, that um, could be interesting to people. Do you have any other book projects in mind that you want to pursue? Sure. I'm actually uh, finishing a, a new book right now that will be out next year. Uh, it's a completely different area, completely different topic. It's um, an investigative piece that uh, grew out of a story I wrote for the uh, Wall Street Journal a few years back. It's about a young man from Michigan who gets uh, caught up with the FBI, starts working for them in counterterrorism. And uh, several years later, after a lot of intrigue, uh, he goes to Russia. This is in 2015 as the, the war in eastern Ukraine is raging. He goes to Russia and disappears. And um, the FBI... Um, is not truthful with um, with the, the parents of this of this man, and um, and they the FBI begins to engage in what seems to be a cover up on what happened to him. So it's an investigative story about um, what happened to this young man. It's also a story of his coming of age and post 9/11 and the rise of the internet and social media um, and what that enables him to get involved in. And it's also a story of how the FBI, after 9-11, transformed from a law enforcement body to a, an international intelligence agency and how it scooped up people like this and, uh, and how it treats them. So um, it's a fascinating story uh, that melds all those elements. And it's also a sort of whodunit as we, we go through the story and, and uh, try and find out where this man is and, and what's happened to him. Yeah, it certainly sounds relevant and interesting. So I'll have to read the article and then <clears throat> read the book whenever it comes out. Well, I really? actually I actually got this uh, book at the library of all places. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, I I really enjoyed your writing. I I enjoyed your writing style, man. You have a good way of like incorporating humor into what you're talking about. Like I, whenever oh, you were talking about Sam Boyd Stadium, you said every backwards hat Napster disciple couldn't fit in. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was good, man. It, it really is what, like a uh, – go ahead. Which library? Where did you get it? Which library? 
Uh, I'm in Ocala right now, so it was the Ocala Public Library. Wow, I'm I'm shocked to learn that it that it still exists. Yeah, That's it, great. it's out there, man. So I don't know if you want to tell people where they can buy the book now, or just wait until the uh, the new refurbished edition is released on paperback. Yeah, I mean, you can I just get it all the regular places online, Amazon, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I mean, hopefully um, in the next few months, uh, we'll be ready with with the paperback and the uh, the ebook and the uh, and the audiobook all at once. And that'll, of course, be up on Amazon. Cool. Yeah, let us know. We'll be happy to promote it. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Brett, thanks for coming on, man. Like I said, I really enjoyed the book and it was a good trip down uh, memory lane, both as a football fan, but also seeing what was attempted as entertainment back at the turn of the century. So thanks for coming on and telling us some great stories about making the book, man. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for your interest. And uh, I, I got a kick out of uh, going down memory lane myself. It was so long ago, but, um, but this, uh, this project was, um, did a lot for me in my career and, and I always hold it dear. So uh, really, really appreciate your interest in it.